0: I am Shane Cashman, and these are Tales from the Inverted World. We are pleased to announce that Tales from the Inverted World is becoming a TimCast exclusive. Sign up at TimCast.com to get access to volume two of Tales from the Inverted World. Ghosts of the Civil War. The following story you are about to hear is true. The gold, the fire, and the howling ghosts Not long after the attack on Fort Sumter in April 1861, a great comet sailed through the night sky. It shone like a coin with a long serpent's tail made of vapor and debris. The comet flew so close to Earth that it made a shadow against the land. It could be seen for weeks, every night, flying slowly out of view. Throughout time, humans have seen comets as gods, giants, monsters, planets, bad omens, or the tears of saints. The Romans believed the Great Comet of 44 BC was the soul of assassinated Julius Caesar rising to divinity. And when Queen Cleopatra died, the Egyptians saw comet stars falling from the sky as if the sky was weeping. But as the United States fractured, Union and Confederate soldiers looked to the heavens and wondered what the stranger traveling over their country symbolized this time. That summer, they would get their answer. They began to call it the War Comet. Four years later, hundreds of thousands of dead would follow the image of the War Comet into the unknown. In the end, it might have seemed as if the War Comet was a harbinger of death, a grim sign from God that war wasn't only imminent, but it would soak the land in blood. As the war came to a close in April 1865, Richmond, Virginia was eaten alive by fires, soldiers, and thieves. The capital of the Confederacy devoured itself in the way a coyote might chew off its own limb to free itself from a trap. It would rather die on its own terms, dragging itself into the woods, than allow the hunter the trophy. It had only been a year since the Union Army failed to burn Richmond down. In the spring of 1864, Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren intended to free the Union soldiers from the rebel prisons, which were known for their depravity. Dahlgren was a young man, 21 with dark hair parted neatly to one side, and he wore a thin mustache and beard. There was an eager way about him when it came to riding into battle, a thrill that got him a reputation for taking on charges that seemed more suicidal than strategic. Although he had lost his right leg two years earlier in Gettysburg, he continued to fight with a wooden leg Seeing as how close the enemy lines were to Richmond, the rebels anticipated the raids on their prison. So they buried a large quantity of gunpowder under the prison sufficient enough to blow up every inmate. Dahlgren planned to free the Union troops, arm them with flammables, and torch Richmond. It would have been a great symbol for the North to see the rebels' sprawling industrial city along the James River burned to the ground but Dahlgren's forces never got close enough to liberate the prisoners of war. He was forced to retreat and then he was ambushed. Dahlgren was shot four times, once in the head. He died on the battlefield. It is said that a 13-year-old boy looted Dahlgren's corpse searching for valuables. In doing so, the boy discovered official papers giving the colonel commands not only to burn Richmond but to capture and assassinate the Confederate leaders, including Jefferson Davis. The Richmond newspapers printed the commands found on Dahlgren's corpse, which in turn encouraged a savage demonstration amongst locals. The people of Richmond exhumed Colonel Dahlgren from the battlefield, tore off his wooden leg, cut off a finger to steal a diamond ring, carried him back into the city, and displayed the corpse outside the train depot. It seemed they wanted to taunt the living by taunting the dead. The corpse of the enemy decorating the heart of the largest Confederate city. Eventually, Dahlgren's corpse was moved to an unmarked and shallow grave. The North disputed the legitimacy of the papers. Dahlgren's name was evidently spelled wrong too, which caused many in the Union to believe the papers were a forgery. But it didn't matter. Whether it was a city on fire or an unearthed corpse, each side made symbols out of destruction. Some believe that the news of the supposed commands for Colonel Dahlgren to capture and kill Davis would inspire John Wilkes Booth to assassinate President Abraham Lincoln. By April 1865, one year after Colonel Dahlgren's corpse was vandalized, Richmond would not be spared from annihilation. However, this time the Confederates themselves would destroy the city. Union General Ulysses S. Grant took Petersburg, and Richmond was next. The rebels refused to let Richmond fall into the hands of the Federal Army. They'd seen what General Sherman's march to the sea had done to the south, the devastations of scorched earth, crops burnt, homes raided, railroad tracks melted and bent around trees. If anyone was going to burn their city, it would be the rebels themselves, not the Federals. Upon orders of evacuation, the Confederates were also commanded to set fire to warehouses filled with tobacco, the smoke twisting into the night sky. They dumped liquor into the streets to keep people from getting wildly drunk as the enemy approached, but men scooped up the spirits into their hats and drank in abundance below the fires. Amongst those rising fires, the dark silhouettes of church steeples looked like the hats of witches crouching in flames. Banks. Bridges and pharmacies burned as thousands of Confederates evacuated their capital. Mobs looted stores, horses loaded onto trains, cannons were abandoned. What the fires didn't eat, thieves took. That night, the fires reflected in the James River so that even the water appeared to burn. Two trains would leave in the night one carrying Jefferson Davis and his cabinet, the other carrying their treasury of gold, silver, Mexican silver dollars, jewelry, and paper currency. The treasury was the last hope of the dying Confederacy. It was of equal importance to the Confederates to keep Davis and the treasury from falling into federal hands. Davis hoped to reestablish a headquarters in Texas and with the treasury, regroup and rebuild. William Harwar Parker had been put in charge of the treasury. At the time, he was the commander of the Patrick Henry, a steamboat docked in the James River that had been captured when Virginia seceded. Parker, with 60 teenage soldiers, kept guard over the treasury. They torched the Patrick Henry before leaving with the gold for the train out of Richmond. But as Richmond burned, the two trains were delayed for many hours. Evacuees crammed the trains. Jefferson Davis didn't know it yet, but he would eventually return to Virginia, imprisoned on charges of treason. Many years after that, the city would also become his final resting place in the Hollywood Cemetery. Commander Parker recalled the terror as he and his soldiers waited to flee the city with the gold, the squeal of Richmond dying all around them. He later wrote, To add to the horror of the moment, we now heard the explosions of the vessels and magazines, and this with the screams and yells of the drunken demons in the streets, and the fires which were now breaking out in every direction made it seem as though hell itself had broken loose. Finally, around midnight, the trains pulled out of the depot. The city was enveloped in flames, and the corpse of Colonel Dahlgren must have been howling from his shallow grave. His vision of a Richmond burning had come to fruition. All the horses in the city were gone, and nearly 1,000 buildings were destroyed on the day President Abraham Lincoln toured Richmond's smoldering ruins. His army's mission now was to capture Davis and take the Confederate gold. As Lincoln walked through the ashes, Davis and the treasury traveled south, first for Danville, Virginia, then eventually for Washington, Georgia, one of the last places the gold would be seen. In that small window of time, at the end of the war, neither man seemed mortal. They had each become grim, ghost-like shadows cast across the land. It was almost Halloween. There were witches, skeletons, and jack-o'-lanterns smiling from the front yards in Washington, Georgia. Dr. Mark Waters waited for me on the porch of the Washington Historical Museum on Robert Toombs Avenue. It's a large white house with a grand staircase, surrounded by tall trees. Stephanie Machia, the director of the Wilkes Historical Society, was seated on the bench next to Mark. Her office was in the museum. Clint Brantley was in a rocking chair across from them, trying to keep Mark from leaving. I was running an hour late thanks to the purgatory of the Atlanta airport's car rentals. Clint had warned me about the preciousness of Mark's time, He was a historian and a meteorologist, and he seemed to like to keep his schedule as if it were as predictable as the day's weather. Clint said I didn't have to worry, though. He would keep them talking. When I finally pulled up in my rental, Clint greeted me in the dirt parking lot. He wore a dress shirt because he wanted to look professional for Mark and Stephanie. Meanwhile, I was trying to regain my balance after the hour drive to my 6 a.m. flight out of New York and the two-hour drive from Atlanta into Washington. I shook Clint's hand for the first time and then he came in close to whisper something. He said we had to be careful about who we talked to around town now because he just heard there was a young woman filming a TV show about the gold. He was concerned, but not discouraged. If anything, I was intrigued. From what he gathered, it sounded like this woman had gained a monopoly on some local properties by way of contracts. Even the museum was involved in some sort of deal with her It was suggested that if I were to cross paths with this woman, I should not disclose my reasons for visiting Washington. I said that wouldn't be necessary. I wasn't here to hide in the shadows, nor was I here to have a pissing contest with a TV production crew. But I'd later find out that this young woman was Katrina Beth. She was portraying one of the ghosts in Rest Haven Revisited, the old cemetery down the road. Her presence only added to what I was down here to investigate, the lost gold. Sure, but the culture surrounding it too. I certainly wasn't the first person to write about the gold, and likewise, Katrina wasn't part of the first TV show to drop into town. As soon as I took a seat, Dr. Mark Waters noticed the words, West Point, stitched across my gray ball cap. He was a tall man, nicely dressed, with clean white sneakers and a head full of white hair. I hadn't fully thought through the implications of that name, West Point, in the very town where Jefferson Davis dissolved the Confederacy. West Point, huh? He asked, scrutinizing my hat, are you military? I told him I was not, but I grew up right outside of the military base. In fact, I said, I lived right near the cliffs where young Jefferson Davis fell and broke his leg one night on his way to a secret bar by the Hudson River, as if having any knowledge of the event would endear Mark to me. And then I said I thought the hat was an olive branch from the north to the south, seeing as how generals on both sides of the Civil War graduated from West Point. Mark said they had a phrase in the South about West Point. The Civil War, he said, was a death by West Point. It didn't mean what I initially thought, which was the image of General Sherman, a West Point grad, burning down the South. For Mark, death by West Point meant a bunch of overeducated men from the South went to West Point, became generals, and it cost them the war. I chose not to press him on this fact, seeing as how Sherman's overeducation had the inverse effect turning the Union into marauding barbarians to help solidify their win. Stephanie had two Ziploc bags by her side. One contained a revolver, the other a silver coin, and Mark had a stack of papers about the size of a family Bible. You wanna see a coin? Stephanie asked. She said the revolver was also found in the woods around here as well. Both were 19th century, dull from years in the earth, but distinctly authentic. Both items were also presumably from the Confederate Treasury and or people affiliated with the Treasury when it was here in Washington. As she pulled the coin out of the bag and handed it to me, she said, look, you can't take any pictures or anything like that. No videos either. Her accent was gentle yet stern. I asked her why I couldn't take photos, although I had a pretty good idea already considering what Clint had just told me. Well, there's a woman down here with a TV show and we're under contract not to share these images or anything with anyone until they're all done filming, she said. I told her I understood and inspected the coin. It was a Mexican silver dollar. Republica Mexicana was engraved around the image of an eagle with a snake dangling from its mouth. A liberty cap encased in sunbeams was on the other side. It said 1862. As I felt the weight of the coin in my palm, Mark said the gold and the silver has all been accounted for as if he expected me to thank him for his time and pack up and leave just as soon as I'd arrived. It seemed like he's grown weary of outsiders attempting to dig around for gold. He was confident that there was nothing outside of the official documents that could lead one to believe there was a vast treasure hiding somewhere in Washington, or anywhere for that matter. Any folklore, he seemed to think, was hogwash. He handed Clinton me copies of his paperwork and began to read off stats. I passed the coin to Clint, and held the gun, thinking about what damage it might have done 200 years ago. Mark rattled off notes from the articles he'd written, articles he trusted, and official Confederate documents. The Confederate treasury left on the last train out of Richmond near midnight on April 2nd, 1865, he said. Contents of the treasury included U.S. coins, such as half-dimes, dimes, quarters, half-dollars, and dollars. That estimated to be about $157,253, there was about $200,000 worth of Mexican silver dollars packed in wooden kegs. He stopped to make sure I was following along. As far as the gold, he continued, there were double eagles, British pounds, ingots, and nuggets. Those were estimated to be about $169,770. There was also a keg of copper pennies, Liverpool acceptances of the paper variety, sixteen to 18,000 British pounds sterling, a chest filled with jewelry donated by the Confederate women, millions of dollars of Confederate notes and bonds, millions of dollars of Confederate paper money, which was about to be worthless. Plus, they had the floor sweepings of the Dahlonega, Georgia mint. They even had gold and silver coins packed into socks. The value of the treasury was estimated to be in the neighborhood of $500,000 to $527,000. However, they left Richmond in such haste that there was no time for the officials of the Confederacy to even count the treasury. May I ask, then, how you can trust anything that you read about the gold if the officials supposedly didn't even count it?" I asked. He said, now hold on a minute, we'll get to that. He flipped through his notes and found copies of multiple times that the treasury had been counted and recorded at various times before and after the fall of Richmond. The man was a human library of Congress. I was impressed how well he knew dates and times and names. He reiterated that he was damn certain anything beyond the facts of these documents should be written off as merely folklore. I asked how he got involved with tracking the gold. I was a member of the Surratt Society in Clinton, Maryland, he said. Clinton, Maryland used to be named Surrattsville." Do you know who Mary Surratt was? The name was familiar, but I wasn't sure why. Mary Surratt, he said, was the first female that was executed by the federal government for her role in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Now, the jury's still out as to whether or not she's guilty. Anyway, I worked for the National Weather Service, and eventually, I ended up in D.C. working for the National Meteorological Center, and the secretary there also happened to be the treasurer of the Surratt Society. So we would talk about these kinds of things because I've got an interest in Samuel A. Mudd. You know who Dr. Mudd is, right? I told him he was the doctor that worked on John Wilkes Booth sometime after the assassination. Right, Dr. Mudd set John Wilkes Booth's leg on the morning of April 15, 1865. His house still stands to this day. Well, my name is Waters, and when I was growing, if I ever did anything wrong, someone would say, Mark, your name is Mud. Anyway, the secretary at the research center got me to write an article about what happened to the treasury, the gold, the events that happened after Richmond, after the assassination. Clint and I must have looked like two students getting tutored, both of us leaning forward in our rocking chairs, listening to Mark as the shadows passed through the porch with the sun. Those doctors actually killed Lincoln, Mark said because they ruined his brain to get the bullet out. You don't go in there with a roto-rooter. He thinks there's something off about the whole sequence of events immediately following Booth shooting Lincoln. He said if you read all the reports from witnesses, something doesn't add up about the assassination. In terms of the way the general public understands how John Wilkes Booth escaped Ford's theater and made it eventually to Dr. Mudd, Mark doesn't believe that Booth broke his leg after shooting Lincoln and jumping from the mezzanine. Multiple reports, he told me, claim that eyewitnesses saw Booth jump on a horse, they saw him throw his foot into a stirrup and pull himself onto the saddle. Other witnesses saw him walk the horse across a narrow bridge. However, witnesses at the Dr. Mudd house said when Booth arrived, he was injured and that the horse also had injuries along the same side as Booth's injured leg. Mark supposes that Booth injured himself during the getaway well after running out of Ford's theater. He doesn't doubt what Booth did. He just doesn't like that the textbooks record it even a little wrong. How do you trust any history then, I asked. We have the archives, the accounts by the bankers from the damn site where it happened. Mark started to raise his voice some. I'll offer a counterpoint though, if you don't mind, I began. Some people could say they are watching our government lie all the time. And the government prints out official documents all the time. Of course, not everyone believes the government is a chronic liar, but many do, so how can we trust the government from back then, during the war, a losing confederacy, mind you, to not make stuff up then, to benefit themselves? Well, it wasn't the government then that did it, it was the bankers. They were making affidavits under oath. It wasn't just one person, it was several of them, Mark said. I don't believe he was getting angry, but this was deadly serious to him. The sequence of events, the numbers, the gold. But I had to ask the question because if he could see the official narrative of Booth's broken leg as somewhat bogus, why not then anything else? So we're in Wilkes County, right? Is there any connection between Wilkes County and John Wilkes Booth? I asked, hoping to steer away from upsetting Mark. Wilkes County, Mark said, is named after John Wilkes. He was a prominent guy from England who was in favor of the colony's independence. That's why everyone back then was naming their kid John Wilkes, Stephanie said. Mark points out the fact that Booth's father's middle name was, of all names, Brutus. Junius Brutus Booth was also an actor. I feel like people don't appreciate how absolutely insane it was for a popular actor to assassinate Lincoln, in a theater, no less, I said. We always say it's like Tom Cruise killing the president, Stephanie said. Mary Surratt must have been starstruck when she met him. And it was her proximity to Booth that led her to getting the rope. The conversation shifted from the hanging of one lady to another. As a matter of fact, Stephanie said, Polly Barclay was hanged right here in Washington. She was the second woman ever hanged in the state of Georgia. Why, I asked. She had her husband murdered, Clint said. They shot him in the mouth and buried him alive, Stephanie said. Clint said he knew the exact spot where they buried the husband because it's on his grandparents' property. Mark must have noticed the shadows had stretched longer across the yard, faster than he expected, because he suddenly got up and said it was time for his lunch. He gave me his card, told me to review the documents and reach out when I had questions. Stephanie said Mark was a very nice man, but if you try to turn around in his driveway, he might kill you. She pointed in the direction of his house with its horseshoe driveway and said, people are always trying to turn around in it because he's right next to the funeral home. Mark seemed like a nice enough guy unless you questioned his documents, but it was funny to imagine him yelling at a car full of mourners making a U-turn outside of his house because they drove past the funeral home. As we took our seats again, I looked up at the museum there was an unmistakable feeling as though it was watching you. As far as I knew, there was no one inside, but every window seemed like a giant glass eye staring at me. Almost as soon as Mark left, a shiny, candy apple red Jeep pulled into the parking lot. Stephanie knew the car. It was Katrina Beth. This is the girl with that TV show, Stephanie said, and discreetly put the relics away. Don't mention anything. The jeep looked like something you'd win on The Price is Right. Now, it could have been total coincidence that Katrina showed up suddenly, but it could have also been that someone in the museum told her I had a meeting with Mark and Stephanie, and now she felt obliged to show her face and make sure I was respecting whatever territories she might have staked out for herself. Stephanie whispered to me, You're just here. We're not talking about the gold. I didn't show you anything. It sounded like she was more of a hostage to the production than a contracted guest. Clint asked if she was some kind of highfalutin city girl, wondering if she was a fish out of water. Oh, no, Stephanie said. She's a gun-toting, tobacco-chewing girl. Stephanie put her pack of cigarettes and her lighter in a little metal urn, put the top on, and hid it beneath the bench. I'll just take her inside, Stephanie said. Y'all can stay out here. Out of respect for Stephanie, I decided to play along. I wouldn't go out of my way to expose the fact that Stephanie had been showing off some of the TV show's treasure, but if Katrina asked, I wasn't going to lie. Stephanie got up to meet Katrina. Her round face was framed by long straight black hair and a pair of large framed sunglasses. She gave us a smile and walked into the dark museum. The old door creaked open and shut behind them. Clint whispered, "'I'm not gonna lie, "'I did not know there would be other people "'trying to write about the gold.' "'It's all good,' I said. "'I'm not here to race them. "'Although I had just met Clint in person for the first time, "'we had talked on the phone a handful of times "'before I flew down, "'and I felt confident that I could trust him. "'Even still, I had to consider whether or not "'he knew all along that this woman was here "'and wanted to see some competition.' He looked around to make sure no one else was walking up on us and lowered his voice some more. That stuff Mark was saying about the gold, he said, it's really good and he is a very smart man, but you also got to talk to the people here who had family members who were telling them the stories of the gold since they were young. I'll talk to anybody, I said. I'll even talk to the TV lady, I nodded toward the museum. Not a minute later, the door to the museum swung open, and Katrina ran out of the place as if her hair was on fire. She wasn't screaming, but it seemed like something had alarmed her. You okay, Clint asked. It's, it's too loud in there, she said, shaking her head. Seeing as how the museum was empty, I must have looked confused. We couldn't help but take her seriously. I also wanted to be polite, even if I didn't fully believe her. But something had disturbed her inside the house. Her hands trembled. Whatever it was that she could hear, it was real enough to her that she felt like she was drowning among the voices of the dead. She attempted to smile as she gasped for air, maybe because she understood how odd this might look to strangers. "'I'll tell you what,' Stephanie said, trying to make Katrina feel better. "'I used to live in a house over here, and I had felt like it needed a facelift. Well, one morning I was up early, it was still dark, and I walked into the room. She paused to make sure she chose her next words carefully.' and I heard something. It wasn't out loud, but I heard it loud as day in my head. It yelled, get out. It was so vivid that I threw up my hands and said, okay. And I went running down the stairs. When I got downstairs, I said, oh no, we're not doing this. This is my house. So I went back upstairs and I said real loud, look, you can stay here. It is a nice house, but this is my house. And then again, loudly in my head, I heard, no. Stephanie said she learned to coexist with whatever it was occupying her home. She said the ghost eventually started turning on the stove. Things would move. She'd hear the sound of footsteps where there was no one walking. All manner of little interruptions that had no tangible explanation. So Stephanie started talking back whenever she'd notice an open flame on the stove. She'd say, that's not funny. Don't mess with my things. Look, when you start renovating an old house, you're stirring up the energy and it awakens the spirits. And then they come out. You're messing with their home, too. Katrina appeared unsurprised by Stephanie's story. This seemed like an everyday occurrence. She said there was nowhere that was safe from the dead. She turned her attention to us now. I was clearly from out of town, as was she, and I suspect we could both hear it in each other's accents. As we introduced ourselves she pulled another cigarette from her pack. She didn't have a lighter, so I lit it. I'm going to be Polly Barclay, she said, as though she were introducing me to the ghost she was not just portraying, but also actually becoming. How long have you been able to talk to ghosts, I asked. I grew up with this problem, she said. Do you think it's a curse, I asked. It runs in my family. On my mom's side, every generation, the women have this. She pointed to her head, My great-great-grandma used to be the person everyone in town came to, to get readings and find missing things. Was that down here, I asked? Massachusetts, she said. That's where all the witches are, Stephanie said, alluding to Salem. My mom was kind of disconnected from her family, Katrina said. And that disconnect made it so her mother never really developed or understood the ability. She only learned to fear it, prayed for it to stop, chalked it up to dreams or anxiety, anything but the voices of the dead. But when Katrina was two, she was already starting to communicate with spirits. Her mother was scared for her daughter. She'd make her pray every night to stop the voices. Her mother told her the same thing she'd tell herself. It was only dreams. I was just like, well, thanks, Mom, Katrina said. And about five years ago, I met this world-renowned psychic. She told me, oh my God, you're freaking powerful. And she's like, you need to close yourself off because you're just wide open and everything is communicating with you and you're absorbing everybody else's feelings. Now she grounds herself every morning by putting a golden light over her to block out the noise. She repeats her name three times in her head like a mantra to whittle all the voices down to only her own. She said it was difficult to find her own voice and that some places like the museum can find a way to invade her thoughts no matter what she does. Stephanie said she heard that more people have this ability than you'd think. They just don't know it, she said. They hear something in their head and they just think it's their thoughts. Although my default is typically skepticism, I felt inclined to tell them that only a day prior, i learned about another woman who can't go anywhere without being inundated with the voices of spirits up until this point, I'd never met anyone who claimed to experience this level of correspondence with the dead. I was getting a haircut in New York by my friend, I told them, and she told me about this woman who can do the very same thing as you, I motioned to Katrina. She talks to ghosts everywhere, or rather, the ghosts talk to her. She had come into the salon and told my friend, there is something here that isn't your mom's, but your mom had it for years, and now you have it. She told my friend the object was now in the color room of the salon. My friend's mom has been dead for years, but she knew exactly what the woman was talking about. It was a paper towel holder. She had purchased it for the salon, and it had this heart shape that was identical to a keychain my friend's mother once owned. She's held on to the keychain for the last 30 years. I believe she bought the paper towel holder for that reason. Sometimes coincidences like this can't help but make me consider just how little I understand about human providence, or really, anything. It could somehow be a parlor trick, anything is possible, but now here I was talking to another woman who also claimed to be able to speak to the dead. Do you think a lot more people can talk to the dead, they just don't know how, I asked. I think everyone's born with the ability... But then you start getting told at a young age that it's all nonsense and it becomes a tool locked in your brain that no one can access, she said. Do you find them or do they find you, I asked. A lot of times they find me, she said. Like I can open up and I can access their visions in like my mind's eye or whatever you wanna call it. But most of the time it just happens naturally. I forget to like block myself off and I just walk right into the spirit world wide open. It can be overwhelming but sometimes I try to use it to find things that are hidden. I can ask the dead where something is, and sometimes they'll show me. Is that so? I asked, thinking this would be a great time to commiserate about the gold, but I didn't want to offend my host. I want to go see the Heard family graveyard, she said. A part of me felt like she brought it up to gauge my reaction, but I never heard of the cemetery. I was starting to wonder whether the ghosts had been eavesdropping on Mark, Stephanie, Clint, and I and had now been informing Katrina as to the nature of my visit. It's a cemetery hidden on David Dennard's property, Clint told me, but they keep it hush-hush. They don't want people trudging through their property to look for some old graves. Katrina looked intrigued, as if it was an invitation. I was surprised Clint said so much, especially after Stephanie telling us to keep quiet about the gold. A part of me thought, damn, Clint, loose lips sink ships. But another part of me thought, good, let's get all this out in the open now so we can get down to business. "'Have you met David?' Clint asked Katrina. "'No, she hasn't,' Stephanie said. "'We keep David hidden.'" Sensing that he might have actually gone too far into what could become gold talk, Clint changed the topic. "'I admire your truck,' he said. "'Red is my favorite color.'" "'I stand out way too much,' Katrina said. "'I can't hide if I wanted to.'" "'You can't hide here anyway,' Stephanie said, laughing. "'Everyone knows everyone.'" Once Katrina drove off, Clint said, "'Man.'" she's creepy i don't believe he meant it in a mean way i think he meant it in the same way kids might say it as they walk past an old and beautiful house that they want to run away from but also explore there was something about katrina that seemed genuine i wanted to believe her or it could all just be part of her tv persona as far as i could tell though there were no cameras pointed at us i went inside to use the bathroom but also to see if I might hear anything knocking from the spirit world. Stephanie's office was downstairs in the basement. It was damp and dark. I grew up in a house a little older than this one and a lot of people tend to say it's haunted. I've had my fair share of experiences with some things in my childhood home and this place gave off that same vibe. Something fell off. It could just be the age of the house and the way it's been furnished with everything 19th century. There's a clock that once hung in the Senate of the Confederacy its white paint peeling. There were musket balls, bayonets, upholstered rocking chairs, a table of toy soldiers replicating a battle, and a chair Jefferson Davis once sat in with a red bow draped over the seat to prevent anyone else sitting. I've been in a lot of places that people like to say are haunted, and sometimes it just feels like the lore of a house can suggest the feeling of something supernatural. I try to keep that in mind whenever I tour through anything that has a reputation for ghosts, But there was something about the way the house seemed to be watching me that made me hold my breath as I took each step across the old floor, as if the sound of my footsteps might disturb whatever Katrina heard earlier. I crept through to the bathroom, the floor creaking with each step. I had that feeling that the house was alive. I couldn't quite place it yet, but Washington was unlike any other town. It's not like I haven't been to Georgia before, I'd been to small towns in Georgia a number of times throughout the years, but Washington had a quality unlike any other. It was magnetic. I'm not saying I heard voices calling my name, but it felt like it didn't want me to leave, or if I did leave, it wouldn't let me go gently. I knew I was down here to look for some lost gold, but now I wanted to try and communicate with the dead too. When I got back outside, I asked Stephanie if anyone ever died in the house. Frank Bean caught on fire upstairs, she said. That was probably 1910 or so. Frank was an eccentric guy. He was very smart and had a couple of degrees, but he was 41 and still lived in his grandparents' house. His room was upstairs. She pointed towards the window on the third floor. He was a little touched, she said. Somehow, he caught on fire in his bedroom. Some people think he knocked over a kerosene lamp. And then he ran down the stairs, and by the time he got down here to the basement, he was completely on fire, and his cousin, Osborne, grabbed him and put him out. We've all been sitting right where he collapsed, into a heap of flames. He died in the house the very next day, she said. His room is now what we have decorated as the children's room, with a little china doll sitting on the couch. Katrina always picks up something in that room, too. She said she sees him standing in the doorway, trying to figure out why are these people in his home. One hour outside of Washington, Georgia, William Glenn was sitting in his office where he sells life insurance when another ghost walked through the door. The ghosts always seem to like to interrupt him when he's working. Most of the time, it's just William and his manager in the office. William deals with a lot of death claims, so he'll tell you he's used to spirits that hang around until they know everything is set up the way they left it. They'll micromanage over his shoulder as he fills out all the forms. His office also happens to be rather close to a funeral home and he thinks that has something to do with the quantity of ghosts that visit him. William had the phone to his ear, but he could hear the ghost, and he pointed in the direction of the voice, as if to tell it not to go anywhere. He just had to finish the call first. Sometimes he'll just know one is in the room, even if they don't say a word. He can sense the cold spots that a spirit makes, like a draft from nowhere. They'll move pictures on the wall. They'll spin chairs. They'll slam doors. They can yell. They can be impatient. As soon as he hung up the phone, William said, are you still here with me? The spirit answered with a low, warbling voice. William reached for his phone to record the interaction, something he always tries to do. The voice said it walked all the way from the Wilkes County Museum in Washington. William knew the museum well. He likes to test his abilities outside of his office, and he had heard about the possibility of ghosts in the museum. So he traveled there not long ago, He was fairly certain one of the spirits he spoke with in the museum was now standing in his office. "'How did you find me?' William asked. "'Your light shines bright,' the spirit told him. William's heard that before from the spirit world. They tell him some people are like beacons for the dead. "'What can I do to help you?' William asked, as if it were any other client walking through the door. William leaned in with his ear to make sure he heard the voice. It said, "'You have to come back to the house.'" We will return next week with more Tales from the Inverted World. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Inverted Tales and on Facebook at Tales from the Inverted World. You can purchase Volume 1 of the Tales from the Inverted World book at InvertedWorldBook.com. Tales from the Inverted World is becoming a TimCast exclusive. Please sign up at TimCast.com to gain access to Volume 2 of Tales from the Inverted World, Ghosts of the Civil War we will upload new episodes weekly plus bonus content. I promise to introduce you to ghosts, skeletons, witches, UFOs, bloodthirsty psychopaths, and all the other real characters hunting for lost gold.